I've talked to like people nowadays at 53 years old who are like, you know, when I'm hanging off a rock face, that's when I feel the most alive. And I'm like, well, you don't feel alive when you're playing with your kids or you're kissing your wife. I, I think that's a real flaw, to be honest with you, to only feel alive when you're like facing death and overcoming that or, you know, and, and so I've never really seen myself as an adrenaline junkie. What thrills me about the mountain process or the kayaking or any of these big adventures is connecting with the right people and having this grand adventure to to me i try to spin it and make sure that all these things i do are like a a celebration of life and and what our potential is and not like hey i gotta prove to the world that i can do this or that or you know i'm gonna defy death i think risk it's the gauntlet you have to cross through to get the reward the reward of connection with your team and you know, we're out there doing something really special together. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout, Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human, those who have taken the risk to realize their dreams and live fully. Today, we have Eric Weinmeier. Eric became the first blind person to reach the summit of Mount Everest on May 25th of 2001. He has subsequently climbed the seven summits, the highest point on each continent. He has also kayaked 277 miles through the Grand Canyon, through some 10 class 10 rapids, absolutely amazing stuff. We were just talking before we came on. He also passed the torch to me, actually to Muffy Davis, who passed it to me so that we could light the cauldron to start the Salt Lake City 2002 games. Eric, thank you for joining us and welcome. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. And you forgot to say that uh, we're five days apart. You, We were mentioning as well. So we were born five days apart. I'm your I'm your slightly older brother. Slightly, he's a very slightly older brother, and I hope we're Irish twins. <laughs> we are, yes, very Irish twins. It, it, this is this is amazing. When I look at all of the stuff that you've done, like climbing the mountains, kayaking, I mean, so many different adventures. But when after I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, people would often ask me, "How did you prepare to climb Kilimanjaro?" And so. There's there's a part of it where you think, okay, there's specific training, right? And there was a lot of specific training, but I often answer them with, it was all the mistakes that I ever made in my life that allowed, that prepared me to climb a mountain because you don't know what's going to happen. What would your answer be for the mountains that you're climbing? What was the preparation or what is the thing that sticks with you that allows you to climb the mountains? Well, you're totally right. I mean, like there's there's the physical training, there's the mental suffering training, and then there's the systems training. You know, you're trying to be better at putting your crampons on and taking them off in weird situations when your fingers are cold and setting up tents and all that stuff. So, yeah. And then the mental toughness, obviously, you know, like you go out on, and do like a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado in the snow in the winter, you don't have a chance in hell of reaching the summit, but you're just you say, okay, we're going to be out 10 or 12 hours and we're not going to sit down, you know? So you're training yourself to, to suffer uh, and be okay with that. And then, yeah, obviously the physical stuff, you know, train like crazy. And that's a whole science, of course. But um, you're right with the mistakes as well. I mean, man, when I first started this mountain climbing stuff, I was a school teacher in Phoenix, Arizona. And I didn't, I hadn't camped out since, you know, winter camping and Boy Scouts. And uh, I was climbing a rock face with a buddy of mine. He was a substitute teacher. And he said, we should try something bigger. And I said, like, what? And he goes, how about Denali? I'm like, well, that's a lot bigger than a rock face in Arizona. And I got really intrigued by the idea. You know, I'm very impressionable. <laughs> and uh, and so I was like, wow, what would it take to have this big adventure? Um, and I think I was equipped for that kind of setting my sights on those big adventures because, you know, like, my dad, uh, he, we just kind of had that culture in our family. My dad was a Marine. He was the captain of his football team at Princeton. He had 118 missions in his A4 Skyhawk over Vietnam. So he's just this absolute, you know, don't quit 
kind of guy. And I think he instilled that in me. So when my buddy said we should try something bigger, I was like, sure, like, let's talk about it. And so we went on this probably 12 or 15 month uh, preparation period where I was going to go from A to Z in 15 months. And uh, yeah, I like when we went up Mount Humphrey the first time, we turned back because I lost a glove and Sam yelled at me and he's like, you know, dude, as a blind guy and on Denali, if you lose a glove, you're you're going to lose your hand. So this kind of stuff can't happen, you know? So so yeah, mistakes were were critical in the beginning because they're like, you know, baseball bats over the head like, okay, you know, this isn't a, a this is a no mistake zone when you get to the real which is hard though, right? Cuz when it's a no mistake when you say don't make a mistake, that's when it's the easiest to go and make a mistake though, isn't it? Yeah, and you have a good team around. You had a really strong team. You know, I had this guy Sam on Denali and I had these three other friends um, one of them got altitude sickness and had to turn back but um so yeah you have a good team so if you do make a mistake you hopefully your team can rally around you um i had another situation though that was like a critical learning period for me we we're on mount rainier training and uh we we're we we're gonna set up camp and we we're like just working on like setting up camp and cutting blocks in the snow and the ice for wind protection and stuff like that. And I was assigned to setting up the tent. And uh, and and I realized that I couldn't set up a tent without taking off my gloves because being blind, like I orient myself with my fingers. And so I took my gloves off and these, and there was this raging storm and these shards of ice would totally nail my hands and they'd go immediately into like blocks of ice. And I kept putting my hands back in my gloves and beating them out and stuff. and. And uh, eventually my friends came over and set up my tent for me. And I was just absolutely humiliated. I felt like, man, I'm letting myself down. What the hell? And I, uh, after that, team down. I went back to Arizona where I was a teacher and I would sit there and, you know, it's like a hundred degrees. I'd sit there in my tank top and my mountaineering gloves in the field near my tent, I mean, near my school, excuse me. And I would, I would work on setting that tent up and breaking it down and setting it up with my fat gloves on. And yeah, by the time I got to Denali, I could set up tents in any conditions, um, you know, even in whiteouts and stuff like that. So yeah, a lot of these things you learn are just absolute falling short at first and then just going, okay, what's the, what's the critical thing here? Uh, and for me, it was like, look, I want to climb mountains. I don't want to be like, kind of this blind guy stereotype getting dragged up the mountain and spiked on top like a football. I want to be able to contribute to the team. Like I know I'm not the best climber or the smartest climber or the fastest climber, but I want to be able to contribute in some way to the team, even if it's to their morale or just getting a few inches up the mountain each day. So that was really important to me. How does that work on a mental level? And I think they're, they're two different things, right? As you're going up the mountain, you, you reach that point of, of exhaustion. You reach that point where you're freezing, but you have to keep going. And it's often about the story that you tell yourself that keeps you going, the reason, the purpose that you're going. But you also have that in the beginning because your learning curve isn't super steep, right? Being a, a blind guy, and you are completely blind. I mean, sometimes we yeah. talk about blind, and, and there are a lot of visually impaired people who effectively qualify as blind, but you are completely blind. And so, yeah, that, my technical medical uh, terminology is blind as a bat. That's the technical. Okay. That's yeah, good. that's the technical. Yeah, way to say it. But but what do you say to yourself, like when that learning curve is so flat in the beginning and you have to do this over and over and you want to contribute, is it the same as when you get to that really difficult part and you think, I can't take one more step? Is it the same story that you tell yourself to be able to keep going or how does it work? Yeah, I wish I had like a silver bullet answer for that. I mean, because like when on my first mountain on Denali, like I'd wrestled in high school and a couple of years in college. So I knew about training and, and physical stuff. I really loved being physical. <clears throat> but on Denali, that first expedition, my first big one, 
I mean, yeah, there, there's one day where you were, you were climbing up to 16,000 feet and coming back down. And on the way down, it was really cold and all these, um, the, the trail was kind of frozen and there are these deep boot holes and the sighted people can see where to exactly step. But for me, I had to feel every boot hole. <clears throat> and a lot of times I'd be off and I'd slide into these boot holes and like twist my ankle or like, um, <clears throat> have like a, you know, I was getting blisters on my heels and I was just getting physically just beat down. And I got back down to my tent. <laughs> and I mean, this is embarrassing, but I went into my tent and I cried, cried like a baby. Cause I was like, I don't think I can wake up and do this again. Um, the beautiful thing though, was when you're fit and kind of mentally there and you got a good team around you, you are able to wake up the next day and say, okay, I'm ready. I'm, you know, uh, I've rested and and I'm ready to try it again and do it a little bit better. I don't know. So that's not a great advice, but that's really the only thing I can say. And there were plenty of days um, where I would think, you know, how far can you physically and mentally push yourself before you do fall down in the snow and just die? You know, where you're, you've tapped into every bit of reserves. You never want to reach that point, but yeah, in the mountains, you are flirting with that limit a lot. And so, um, you know, a lot of people never figure it out and go over that threshold and get themselves in trouble or, or get hurt or die. On Denali, there was a woman who finally summited. I think it was her third try. And on the way down, she thousand feet down from the summit, there's a flat spot. She fell down and just died in the snow. She's, you know, I think they might have recovered her body, but I kept thinking, God, I don't want to be that person. So yeah, you're exploring what those limits are constantly in the beginning, especially. Is being that close to potential death, reaching this major challenge, is that when you're most alive? I mean, I kind of, it, it's funny, like I, it, looking at your stuff, I went back and I was thinking about uh, Rounders, the movie Rounders, where mm -hmm. Matt Damon is playing poker and he was telling his girlfriend it didn't go over very well, but he was telling his <laughs> girlfriend that he was most alive when he was at the table, like he felt yeah. truly alive. Is that how it works for you on the mountain? Like as close to death as you can possibly be in some ways is when you're most alive? It's a really good question. I'm really glad you answered that because it, I haven't really talked about this too much, but like I have talked about this with friends. I, I think that is a dangerous, uh, I think that's a dangerous mindset to have. I've talked to like people nowadays at 53 years old who are like you know when i'm hanging off a rock face that's when i feel the most alive and i'm like well you don't feel alive when you're playing with your kids or you're kissing your wife or you know you're you're drinking a glass of wine with your good friends like like that's i, I think that's a real flaw to be honest with you i mean to only feel alive when you're like you know when you're facing death and overcoming that or you know, and, and so I've never really seen myself as an adrenaline junkie um, or like somebody who's defying death. What thrills me about the mountain, connecting with an incredible group of people, and hopefully you, you pick the right people. And then you go through this experience together and you kind of start to answer the questions because, you know, in these processes, you have you're full of questions without answers. So together you start to kind of pioneer these new systems and strategies and tools and ways of communicating. And, you know, uh, and, and you go through failures together, like we talked about, and you kind of flip the script and turn them into successes. And, uh, and you, and you see that incremental improvement over the years when you commit and, and, and then you look back at one point and you're like, wow, look how far I've come here. To, to me, I try to spin it and make sure that all these things I do are like a, a celebration of life and, and what our potential is and not like, hey, I got to prove to the world that I can do this or that or, you know, I'm going to defy death or beat death. I mean, I think risk is the thing you got to it's the gauntlet you have to cross through to get the reward, the reward of connection 
with your team and you know we're out there doing something really special together it does seem like it is that community and that for me like climbing kilimanjaro the best part was the community is working with that community with no barriers the, your motto is uh what's within you is stronger than than what's in your way yeah and 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 it is this sense of problem solving but problem solving as a group you talked a bit about your role and not wanting to be this this blind guy that you spike at the top kind of thing like we got him here okay this is great now we can bring him back down <laughs> what's that like on a mental level because i know that i've gone through the same thing but going to Kilimanjaro, I did it in a hand cycle, right? And and I was flying at two and a half miles an hour. Like that was going uphill. I was that was as fast as I ever went, but I was training really hard to not be too far behind, to not drag the group down. Is is there that mindset for you? Because like watching you cross the the crevasses and 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 stepping over the ladders and everything. I couldn't help but think you must be so exhausted yeah. by the time you get off of that ladder. Yeah, yeah. I I was crushed in the Kumbu Icefall. Um <clears throat> yeah, I I think you know, it's another really awesome question because I feel like, you know, when I went blind, of course I wanted to be independent. I didn't like people looking down on me, you know, like I imagine it's similar in a wheelchair. You know what I mean? You like, you have this like suspicion, especially, you know, as you're maturing that like people are looking down on me and I'm like this egg that like cracked in the hallway and it's gooey and everyone's stepping around it, like not knowing what to do with this, you know? And, and, and so I had those feelings and, and I know those affected me, but I think what I realized was like, okay, independent independence is, is 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 wonderful, and you should strive to be as absolutely independent as you can. But look, everyone needs help, and I need specific help as a blind person. So for me, part of the being a part of a team is like my friends start to learn where I need help and where I don't, and and how to com communicate with me. And sometimes, yeah, I do need extra help. And uh, if I accept that help, then I can stay up with the team better than if I was just stubbornly independent. So, you know, I guess that's a bit of a cliche, but yeah, like if you rely on people, you go way higher than if you sit in your basement and say, oh, I'm going to be independent. You know, I think in a way independence can hold you back. So, yeah, I accept help on these mountains. And, you know, with the work I do with No Barriers, you know, I've helped people with every disability under the sun reach the summit of different mountains. And I think it's really fun saying, okay, how do I, how do we come together as a team and, and, and support them in the way that they need so that they can be the best version of themselves, that they, you know, kind of can flesh out their own potential. Uh, and, and for me, that's like what diversity and inclusion is. I know that's like the big buzz phrase now, but that's really what it is. How do we help people to not be on the sidelines, but to give them the tools and the support that they need to to be the best version so they they can contribute uh in the best way they can and then they we 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 at the top can celebrate and share that connection because as you know I keep coming back to this idea that like it's that feeling of connection that I think I strive for uh in the mountains I don't really have this desire to go out and you know uh climb a mountain you know alone and not talk to somebody for 30 days that's you know some people do enjoy that but for me it's about it's a it's about the interaction with the team. How much of it is about the dynamic sense of learning? You were talking about the Kombu uh, Icefall and what the first time you went out and climbed it, it was what, 13 hours? <laughs> yeah. And then the last time you did it, you did it in five hours. Yeah. And, and so believing that you can get from 13 hours to five hours is, is something that I'd imagine you can communicate to those other people who who can't really see the possibility of what they're able to do. Is that dynamic part of learning a big part of what you're communicating? Yeah, it is. But I mean, like when I got crushed in the icefall, the Kumbu icefall that first time, and it was 13 hours, um, 
by the way, I came up above the Kumbu Icefall 13 hours and I tripped over a tiny crevasse coming into camp. I was so exhausted. And my friend reached out to kind of like grab me, but he had an ice axe in his hand and he smashed me in the nose with his axe. So I came into camp like blood just pouring down my face. I felt like I was going to pass out. I might have broken my nose because I noticed that my nose has been a little crooked ever since then. But um, and I laid in my tent. I was so exhausted. PV, our team leader, he had to take my crampons off for me. And I just laid in the tent thinking, oh, my God, I mean, this is I've gone way. Uh, there's no way I can bounce back from this. Like, but I, I've trained myself and and I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, but I call it the open heart policy. Don't count yourself out. You never know, right? You got to keep an open heart. And and so on Everest, I forced myself that night to say, I am not done. I'm, I'm going to have an open heart and I'm going to go back down to base camp. I'm going to rest for a few days. I'm going to regroup and I'm going to come back up with an open heart, not like jaded or like defeated. Um, and so I think that for me has been critical in these processes. Yeah, like you don't know if you're going to break five hours, you know, your 10th try up, but you know, you're, you're open to the idea. And so, yeah, in the Kumbu Icefall, every time you go back up, and by the way, you climb Everest like 10 times up and down and up and down, setting up your camps and uh, climatizing, uh, you know, there's just incremental improvement, you know, like I'd figure out a little way to like feel my friend's hand to know, okay, that's the right rope to clip into. He doesn't have to say anything or to get to the edge of that crevasse. And my friends tap where they want me to land and they don't have to talk too much. They're just tapping where they land. And I just know, okay, okay, I'm at the edge. I'm going to jump, no hesitation, bam, stick the landing. Um, you know, I learned how to lock my crampons over the rungs of the ladders um, to actually be able to like make sure it was a secure step so that, you know, I could get across those ladders efficiently. So it's just incremental uh, improvements in efficiency and communication. And then these systems that you're developing along the way. And yeah, all those stack up eventually. And so, yeah, my last time up the Kumbo Icefall, I broke five hours. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's just keeping your open heart. Well, the open heart to me is a lot about this idea of sort of saying yes, saying yes to the possibility. You right. contrast it with with being crusty, with being hard, and which in some ways people assume is being tough, right? This idea of being tough, but being being an, having an open heart, saying yes, is really being vulnerable, which is which sounds like a really strange thing to be on the mountain. Is there is there a spiritual part of, of climbing the mountain? Is that part of like a connection with the mountain? Yeah. And you're right. And it is vulnerability. <laughs> when you get to the summit of a mountain, you know, in the movies, you pound your chest and you're like, I've conquered the mountain. As you know, from your climbing and mountaineering experience, when you're on the summit, you're crushed. You're a little bit nervous because you got to get down. Um, you're you're hungry you're cold you're thirsty uh you are as vulnerable as it gets you're this tiny little wimpy human cocooned by this little bit of gore-tex and down and you're in this wild place that humans maybe have no business of being it it's a spiritual place it's a temple and so yeah i think that vulnerability is a connection to the spiritual and uh it's it's not beating your chest it's saying wow like i'm a speck and I'm connected to this infinite place. And I've felt that so many times in the mountains, on the rivers, you know, like six, seven, eight years of training, kayaking, you finally go through a rapid and it's massive, you know, and you're riding that gauntlet between this waves just crashing up against the wall and left and this huge hole on the right. And you just squeak right through and you're like, I'm not like fighting the river. I'm not like separate from the river. I'm not trying to to beat the river. I'm kind of like connecting with it. I'm connecting with this place. I'm I'm not looking at this experience through a window. I'm here. I'm feeling it. And you get through that experience and man, your mind is like glowing with this beautiful connection 
And that's as close as I've gotten to the spiritual in my life. That's what I truly feel. God's never come down and spoken to me and said, you know, Eric, do X, Y, and Z. But man, I, I feel the voice when I'm out there. Yeah, you achieve this level of harmony, like with with your community, with your, with your surroundings. I mean, in some ways, athletes talk about it as sort of being in the zone. Yeah. But 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 it is this sense of harmony where you're not fighting, because sometimes it seems like you are fighting. One of the guys who climbed with me when we were going up, he was talking about he had he had trekked in Nepal, and he was saying that when he was when he was going with their guides there, their guides said that you never stand on the true summit of the mountain out of respect for that mountain. And obviously the mountain's going to be there forever, right? You think, oh, I conquered this mountain. It's like, yeah, you conquered this mountain, but it's going to be there for years and years and years, thousands of years after you're long gone. Do, do you think about that kind of thing of having the respect and almost being allowed to get to the top? Yeah, when you're on a mountain or on a river, you know, look, I don't really believe that the mountain has a spirit, like necessarily like in a kind of a, um, in a primal way like that. But maybe, maybe it does. I mean, how would I know? But um, no, you definitely start to feel like the mountain is alive and there's a kind of a life in that journey. And you have utmost respect for, the thing you're doing and the place you're at uh, and you have to give utmost respect to it. And um, so I always think like you don't ever conquer a mountain. You, you sneak to the top while the mountain blinks and the mountain has allowed you in a way to reach the summit and stand there for a moment and cry and celebrate and hug and take your photos and then get the heck out of there and get down to where humans belong. <laughs> um but yeah, no, for sure. Like when I go to a place, I never want to climb the mountain right away. I want to get to know the place and get to know the people and just connect with it because then I feel like I've I've done what it takes to now, you know, maybe deserve a right to have a chance at reaching the summit. But if you just go in and use the mountain for your own needs, like, you know, I just feel like it's a little bit uh, disrespectful. Um, I think it was a friend of mine that I was climbing with, he's kind of a cool guy from Italy, really smart, really spiritual guy. He said, do you go to the mountains to climb or do you climb to go to the mountains? Meaning, do you like go to the mountains to discover something or you're just kind of using it as your own personal playground? I think it's a good thing to debate in our minds. Because it has to be personal too, right? This journey has to be personal. You talk about being a blind guy that it's about shattering that perception of what it means to be blind. I feel like you and I are speaking a similar language. I often said, probably not as eloquently as you did, that I want to spread doubt, that I want people to doubt what they thought they knew so that they have to see it for the first time. But you're talking about it in a, in a similar way. What does that mean to you to talk about shattering what it means to be blind? Well, I think even at a deeper level for me, before you shatter the world's perception, you're shattering your own perceptions. You know, we don't know what we can do. We don't know what we can achieve. You know what I mean? So, yeah, you have that open heart. You go through and you have some big successes. You have some stunning successes. You're you're blowing your own mind first. <laughs> and uh, And then, sure, it has a side result, which is like people then go, wow, I didn't know you could do that, you know? Uh, so yeah, I I do think it's like like uh, it's like taking a, a like a glass and shattering it into a million pieces, and then like okay now you have that that doubt of what's possible, and then when the world rebuilds whatever it is, that glass is better and stronger and more beautiful. You know, the door is now open for people now. So yeah, I think uh, it, it is a little bit about shattering. It is a little bit about. Um, destroying what people kind of think as you know their their sort of belief system and then they they're forced to rebuild it and you know that's that's good for the world it's good for people you know it keeps it helps people to get out of the sidelines and, and into the thick of things it does get to be universal doesn't it it's this is this human journey of when i watch you do something i go wow that is super cool i want to be a part of that 
And especially when I'm looking at my own challenges through such a myopic lens, oftentimes, you give us a bigger lens with which to look at our world and go, wow, how do we, how do we, how do, how do we make the most of our world? And, and does it, does it have to be that universal journey and and maybe maybe let me take a step back because i think that sometimes you talked about the perception of that, that you have to blow your own mind before you can blow anybody else's mind yeah but i also think that there's 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 sort of a third thing in some ways it's almost like like there's the the way that that i see myself the way that people see me and then there's the way that I think that people see me. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Which sometimes I feel like is is what you're talking about in terms of this blowing my own mind is like actually giving other people permission to to see me for who I am. Is, is that is that some of the journey for you? This idea of like, it, are you your own audience? Is it the people around you? And is it the way that you think you might see, you know, that they might see you? It'd give you a really confusing question. No, I think it's a great question. And, you know, as, as I get older, I hope I'm getting more mature and more honest and truthful in terms of the way I see myself. Um, and I, I, you know, and maybe it's just a bit of a narrative that I tell myself, but I, you know, I always look back to this moment when I had gone blind. I went blind a week before my freshman year in high school. And I bet I got led into the school uh, as a newly blinded person. And, you know, I just was like, all my friends were like, how do, who is this person? You know, freshman year high school, everyone's vulnerable. And they're looking at this guy they used to know. And now he's being led into the school and people weren't so kind, you know. Uh, and um, but, but it was partly because just the situation, it, you know. And I remember sitting in the cafeteria um, at a table. And all my friends were over there like 30 feet away, just laughing and joking and having food fights. And I was like sitting there thinking, God, I, there's this vast expanse between me and, and the world. And how will I ever break through? How will I ever break through this brick wall? And I can't see through it. I don't know what's on the other side. Um, and so, yeah, how do you separate that from now like you reaching Kilimanjaro summit or, you know, winning golds in the Olympics or um, standing on a summit, right? Like, yeah, of course you look at your journey and you go, wow, like, look how far I've come. This is, I'm so grateful for all I've been able to do. You're making me teary eyed, Chris. I know. I appreciate it. This is, I'm right there with you, Eric. So yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because I, I remember watching a movie. I watched this movie one time called uh, uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. Yeah, this guy has a stroke and and he has one eye that is open. And so we're seeing we're seeing the world through this one eye, but he can't blink. And so then they're worried that his eye will dry out and will be damaged so they actually stitch his eye together <laughs> and and it was it was one of the most haunting scenes i've ever seen in a movie and 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 you're talking about kind of what i felt in that it sort of paradoxically felt both claustrophobic and an abyss at the same time yeah. Was that did they did they have an accurate portrayal of, of of what it's like to lose your your sight? And then how did you how did you find that key that kind of you know that moment that sort of let you make sense of that world? It wasn't like a grand revelation. I mean, it was this incremental thing, you know, like even as fundamental as like, I, you know, at first I wouldn't use my cane as a blind person. Cause I was like that. I'm not, I'm not some dorky blind guy. You know, I don't need that. You know, I'm not learning Braille. You know, I was just like a stubborn little jerk because I didn't want to be blind. I hated the idea of being blind. And so I was, to, I was a real 
a real frustrating person. <laughs> and so one day I wasn't using my cane um, and uh, very well. And I was walking down a dock and uh, I stepped off the edge of the dock and I did a flip in the air and I landed on my back on the deck of a boat. And I just thought, okay, that's the nuts and bolts of it. You know, you better start freaking learning how to use this stuff or you're going to kill yourself. So, you know, so you just realize certain things are bigger than you. So that's, that's the first step, I think. Secondly, I started like opening myself up saying, I, I, I have hope and I have, I want a sense of adventure, you know, um, in my life. And so I'm just going to say yes to things because I don't want to sit on the sidelines I don't want to be Dottie Dark listening to all my friends over there living and I'm like, you know, just in the darkness. And so I joined the wrestling team. Um, my dad, uh, uh, my mom said you should get a guide dog. And I and I applied and I got a guide dog. Um, my dad said, hey, there's this recreational program for blind kids. Um, that's, you know, because blind kids miss out on ball sports. And um, and once a month they meet. In this place, and they go horseback riding and uh, cross country skiing and sailing and canoeing and tandem biking. And one weekend, they took us rock climbing. And do you think I knew anything about rock climbing? I grew up in Connecticut. I drove up there. My dad drove me up there. I climbed this rock face. I was like a scrappy little fit kid. And I was feeling my way up the rock face, going, wow, this is stunning. Like the pattern of the rock that I'm feeling with my hands and my feet. And I'm up high and the space is all around me and, and I'm way up above the valley. And, and like, I just put everything into this. Um, and, and I was like, this is living. This is fully adventure the way I define it in my mind. So, yeah, I think it's just an incremental process of, of not uh, allowing that brick wall that you can't see through to uh to to shove you to the sidelines and make you jaded and 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 wall yourself off and create this kind of defensive crust around you that now there's just a bigger separation between you and the world did did you always have that that sense of saying yes that that open heart was it the flip off the dock landing on the boat that i mean this is where you believe in a higher power right i mean somebody's like like going this guy doesn't seem to get it let's see if we can actually teach him you know he, he might be one who needs to get hit over the head a little bit <laughs> sadly i've had to get i've had to be hit over the head a lot to learn things i'm a very slow learner but did you always have that that sense of the open heart or did you have to come to that to say I'm making myself more separate. I need to be open to the possibilities, even and especially if they scare me, which they have to. I mean, yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I don't know. I just always had this fundamental fear. of I have FOMO disease, Chris, you know, fear of missing out, you know, for me going blind. Okay, I could deal with that. Not being able to see beautiful sunsets and Van Gogh paintings, you know, I miss that stuff, but I can live without it. Um I can find other ways to enjoy life. But for me, it was the idea of you have one life as far as we know, and I'm going to sit and and waste it. It's going to be a life lived for nothing. I mean, how terrifying is that? That was terror in my heart, you know, uh, to just be on the sidelines. And so, like, I would force myself to go do stuff, you know. I remember joining the wrestling team. I still viscerally remember that day where I decided to join the wrestling team and it was so full of questions I didn't know anything and uh, I just remember tapping my cane down the hallway and I can remember that smell of that wrestling room the dirty sweat socks and and uh, jock straps you know that nasty musty smell just getting closer and closer and closer I'm tapping away and I opened the door and I was in the wrestling room and I'm like like to sign up for wrestling what was the reaction from the coach when you came in banging your banging your cane against the wall, you know, going through the door, banging your cane and said, I want to join the wrestling team. What did the coach have to say when you came in? The beautiful part was when I have blundered into these things, like when I blundered into the Arizona Mountaineering Club, you think like in the movies, it's going to be like, oh, blind cat can't do this, you know? No, they met me with open arms. Those wrestlers were my best friends. They changed my life. Being a part of that team was everything to me. 
in fact, it's a kind of a funny story because the captain of the wrestling team was a hundred pounds. He was like, the, that's like one of the lightest cat weight classes in wrestling. And, uh, he, uh, he would wrestle the, all the freshmen. Uh, there were like eight of us. They'd wrestle us like, and, and his job was just to humiliate everyone. He was a state champion, really amazing wrestler. And he'd drag you out and just slam you into the mat. And then next guy, drag him out and slam him into the mat. I think it was, you know, just a lesson in humiliation like this. And he dragged me out and slammed me into the mat, just like every other kid. And I thought, my God, this is my team. This is my family. I want to be a part of this. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so that really did change my life. That was my first team. And I think like, okay, blindness is important, but I found a place for it. It's not the most important thing. The most important thing is being part of this thing that's bigger than all of us. It's, and it, you said it's your team, but it's also, it's where you belonged. I would imagine like for me getting back to skiing yeah. Was where I felt like I had recovered. Yeah. Because I was reclaiming my life. It sounds like wrestling was that doorway that you went through and said, I belong. I'm back. I got slammed and I love it. Was that? <laughs> yeah. And then rock climbing and then, uh, you know, all the things I opened myself to. And then um, going out and uh, going to a job conference and getting a job as a teacher and moving across the country to Arizona and starting a classroom leading a classroom full of middle school kids who all could see and knowing this is my team. And then, you know, going and starting climbing and connecting with people who say, you know, Hey, I don't know anything about blindness, but I, I think you're cool. And you have seemed to have gratitude and I'll take you under my wing and I'll teach you everything I know. We'll see how far we can take this thing. I'm no expert in blindness and that, that doesn't matter at all. Uh, and so, yeah, I've just been so lucky to be connected with people uh, and, 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 and in a really beautiful way. And I really have gratitude for that, for that connection. What was the reaction of the kids in the middle school? Middle school for a lot of teachers is the most fearful place to be. They're going through puberty. They're going crazy. They're trying to, you know, assert their independence and, and they look at a potentially vulnerable guy in front of the class how did that interaction work? I thought the kids thought it was kind of cool, you know, like, hey, this teacher is different. And we do things in this classroom a little bit differently. Like in my class, you couldn't um, raise your hands. Of course, I wasn't going to call on you. <laughs> so the kids, I'd say, just speak up. But this is really a tricky thing. Even adults can't do it very well. You know, we got to look around the room and uh, let people speak. And when they're finished, you know, you can speak and maybe reply and respond or add to what they have said. So we kind of worked on how dialogue works in a real world, not just raising your hands. And that was one thing. And then the kids would uh, step up in ways that they wouldn't in other classes. Like they would write the equations on the board. They would pass out papers. They would help correct each other's quizzes. Uh, they would, you know, uh, fill my dog's water dish. Uh, and, and at first I wanted to be like, as I said, fiercely independent you know, as a teacher. And then I realized, no way, man, I have 30 sets of perfectly working eyes and perfectly working hands. Like this is what a team is. So yeah, my classroom was my second team after wrestling. And, and they had ownership. I'd imagine that not only were they writing the equations on the board, but then they had to read to you whatever somebody had done with that equation to solve the problem as well. Right. Yeah. And it was a, it was a kid. Um, I might butcher the story, but if I remember correctly, this kid, he was Sikh and uh, which is a religion. And uh, he um, wore a turban and he told me uh, he's like, you know, he told me, Mr. Weimar, like I'm, I um I feel a little bit self-conscious because Sikhs, we don't cut our hair. My hair like goes down to all the way down to my waist, you know? And I said, well, you know, why don't you come in and kind of do a showing show and tell? Uh and and tell the kids about the Sikh religion. So he did. He came in with all these cool like artifacts and weapons and swords and stuff. And at the end of the show and tell, he whipped his turban off and this hair went pouring out down to his waist. And everybody was like, whoa, cool. And 
that guy turned his narrative into power. And I thought that's what that's what we got to do as disabled people. Turn our stories into power, man. Fuel, right? Make that narrative purpose and power. You know, it's not weakness. It's it's different, but it has its own advantages. It, it does have its own advantages. And that to me was always a challenge in some ways, turning turning that into power because we have power in some ways, like with regard to a group. I mean, you and I have both done adventures. And I think that part of what we've been able to do is achieve things that people thought were impossible. Right. And you you get accorded a status as a result of those achievements, but it's not necessarily personal. Sometimes it can almost... I mean, you talk about building a team, but for me, I felt like in some ways it, it it could separate me because there's sort of this superhero kind of image that you're you're different than everybody. And you're like, okay, I came into this and I thought I was different because of what had happened to me. But then as a result of what I've done, I can be different as well. How how were you able to bridge that gap? Because bridging the gap for you is something that's really important. How were you able to bridge that gap on a on a personal level, like with a with with, with a personal relationship? Uh, was that harder? Well, maybe this is the same for you, Chris. I mean, show yeah, it's so easy to get sucked into this kind of celebrity thing where you're exceptional and you know, look at me, you know, and everyone kisses your butt, you know, and and so it's so easy to get sucked into that, and uh, you know, sometimes your family, your kids, <laughs> well. You know, the people that actually know you are like, yeah, you're not that. <laughs> uh, so that's nice to have that, you know. Um, but I've always felt like, yes, it's so easy to fall into a bit of that snobbery, you know, because a lot of people are striving and they'll never climb Everest or Kilimanjaro or whatever the stuff we've done. But they're living exceptional lives because they're pushing and they're reaching a little beyond their comfort zone. Um, like perfect example, I think, is like at the No Barrier Summit, which just happened in August. It's about, we had about 500 people up to Estes Park. Uh, and you spoke at uh, one of our summits uh, uh, in Salt Lake City. Park City, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, excuse me, in Park City, yeah. But so Estes Park, we have 500 people, a lot of people with you know disabilities, every disability under the sun. And our our participant, uh, Melissa Simpson, she's got cerebral palsy and she's in a wheelchair uh, and her no barriers pledge was to walk across the stage. And she trained for six months with her physical therapist walking and she um, got up. Uh, we got her up on stage in a wheelchair. She stood up, uh, which is incredibly hard. And she was on a, a walker and I was to her right and my buddy was to her left. And she walked a hundred feet across the stage and it took like six minutes or something. And she's real wobbly, but she's just totally forcing herself across the stage and so proud. And the audience just stood up and cheered. And that's her Everest. It doesn't have to be this elite bullshit. You know, it, it, it's just walking across the stage to me said everything that no barriers is right. And because that was such a stretch, such a risk for her. And she had an open heart and she did it. And uh, people just stood up and cheered. And it was the highlight of the whole summit. And so that's all I ask of people, right? Is that sense of having a having an open heart, having that goal. It, is it getting closer to something? I mean, you've climbed so many mountains and the mountains are both real and proverbial, right? And and looking looking at the kayaking, kayaking through the Grand Canyon and looking at these class 10 rapids. I mean, I, I was there with you as I was watching the movie. Like I was, I was scared. I might have been more scared than you were watching the movie. And obviously I know that you've made it through. That was pretty scared. <laughs> but but it's uh, you know, I I was reading a book on the Dalai Lama a few years ago, and the guy who was who was uh, do, writing the book was interviewing his holiness. And he said, so, so what's enlightenment like? And, and as the reader, you're thinking, okay, this is cool. Like I want to know what enlightenment is. And he said, his holiness said, 
enlightenment is the top of the mountain. I'm not there, but I know that I'll get there. Hmm. Is there, is there something like that for you where you feel like, like you're, you're, you're getting closer to something you're, you're trying to reach something. Look, I love the mountains. I love the rivers. I have a great respect and love for them and I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm not out there just to prove that blind people can do this or that. I mean, that's secondary, you know, to the, to the process, but um, when you, and, and when you get to the summit of a mountain, it's not like, you know, you, you, you know, some voice comes down and speaks to you and changes your life, right? Like there's nothing magic to standing on the summit or kayaking a river. Um, but it is a catalyst, right? It does bump you into this great adventure that gets your mind that breaks out of, um, it is a great process that breaks you out of your like normal day-to-day patterns and gets your brain working in an absolute new way and a new, you know, lens that you're looking at the world through. So it's the mountains, the rivers, these beautiful places can be incredible catalysts to understanding who you are and your potential. But eventually you got to take that home, you know, um, I, you know, you got to, I think like come down the mountain and take the gifts that you've earned through your struggle and, and figure out what those are and say, how do I access these gifts at home when I'm sitting on my couch, playing my guitar, having a beautiful day out rock climbing with uh, my friends or maybe having a nice dinner party, you know, uh, celebrating somebody's birthday, which we did the other day. How do I access all the things I've learned to like bring it home to my daily life? Um, to, to me, that's really important so that the mountains and the rivers don't become kind of a separation. They don't become like escapism because I can't handle the real world. And so for me, I've been trying to, in my second half of my life, bring it home and say, why can't I access these beautiful feelings and connections? I don't have to go to the ends of the earth to do it. It's a great reminder. We learn things. It's this fundamental kind of experience, right? When you're in something that is that difficult, you learn things on a fundamental level, but to bring those back to your personal your personal being to learn to learn that absolute and and you know i mean and some of it for me is is holding myself trying to hold myself to that same standard in my in my everyday life and that's what you're talking about in terms of the 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 open heart and and for me in some ways it's 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 this idea of i call it realizing possible it is yeah. it is winning the battle with myself it's that small little battle that when I want to quit, when I when I want to, uh, you know, when I'm just frustrated, or when I want to panic or whatever it is, to say, no, this is this is that battle. This is because sometimes we just think our reactions are just chemical. And it's like something happens and we react. And it's like, no, I have the ability to determine how I'm going to react. How about on the risk side of things? Does it, this idea of sort of shattering the perception of blindness, do the risks have to keep getting higher? Because you've done some things that are fairly risky. I mean, my friend Kevin Zott one time, who's a who's a blind athlete, I don't know if you know Kevin, he, he was a judo guy and he was playing golf with, with uh, some of the sponsors and there was water in front of him. And they're like, oh, watch out for the water. And he said, you know, you can't fear what you can't see. But you've said that a little bit differently, that you have to have some awesome respect for what you can't see. Those, yeah, you don't you don't want to fall into a crevasse somewhere. My friends will be like, all right, I know you can ski this face, buddy. I know you can do it. Just don't fall. Don't fall. Okay. Just it's a no-fall zone, but you can do this. And I'm like, but I can't see what I'm about to do. I'm freaking scared. <laughs> so <laughs> So I, I don't know. I think the fear of the unknown is scarier than the stuff you can see in some ways. <laughs> but anyway, what what's the I missed the the, the connection. The question is, does the risk keep going up? You know, because you and I are about to have our 54th birthdays. Yeah. And we're getting older. They talk about 8,000 meter peaks. It's not a matter of of if, it's a matter of when kind of thing. And how do you how do you 
manage that risk as you continue to grow and stretch yourself as a human being? It's hard. It's really hard. I mean, and and I think like people get themselves in trouble, you know, because you climb Everest or you do some big thing and you're like, I got to top that. I got to do something harder and riskier and scarier. And I think that's a dead end road, you know, and it leads you to death or getting injured or, you know, lack of fulfillment in a way, because you're just trying to up the ante all the time. Uh, it's funny. People will always be, you know, writing me and like, Hey, you know, I got the next adventure for you. You know, um, I want you to, I want to, you know, I have this really cool um, catapult and I'm going to put you in a Velcro suit and I'm going to catapult you through the air. And I have this giant wall and you're going to stick to the, to the wall. I'm like, yes, stupid. I'm, I'm not like some blind evil Knievel guy just looking to, to do silly things. Like these adventures have to mean something to me. They have to teach me something. They have to be special and meaningful to me to go through the risk and, and the, and the effort to, to make them happen. Cause you, as you know, it takes so much hard work to make these things happen. So you got to really care about what you're doing. And so, yeah, I don't think like, as we get older, we're not going to be crushing the world physically as we were when we were younger. That's just probably a reality. But to me, the question is, okay, how, where do I move in my life? where I'm evolving and I'm challenging myself at the appropriate in a, in, a, in a way that fits like where I am, the stage that I'm in my life right now, you know? Um, and so PV, my team leader on Everest asked me that, like he said it in such a cool way. Um, at the end of Everest, uh, PV team leader, he pulls me aside and he says, Hey, Eric, I want you to do me a favor. And I just thought it was going to be like something like here, sign this, flag or something like that and he goes don't let this be the greatest thing you ever do do me a favor and so i think what he was saying is exactly what we're talking about like you know let's not just put this on our resume and then like you know i don't know just like put it you know just kind of hang on that and hang hang your pictures and put your trophy on the wall and say okay you know look what I did, but kind of use that experience organically and integrate it into your life as a way of like moving forward into something new. And so, you know, like that statement and climbing Everest and all that stuff led to no barriers. It led to the Grand Canyon. It led to adopting my son, Arjun, from Nepal. Uh, you know, it, these things have to lead you in directions that are meaningful in your life. It's not just about topping yourself for the resume, I think. No, I think so. And it was interesting when you were talking about climbing for the first time back with the recreational group. And as you were describing, finding the handholds and feeling the contour of the mountain. I mean, that to me was you were describing beauty. I mean, it was, it was an aesthetic. I learned at one point fairly recently, learned how to draw. And, and in learning how to draw, and I'm not, I'm not great, but, but it changed my perspective going through all of these, all of these exercises, I started seeing things differently and, and seeing beauty where I hadn't seen beauty where you go, Oh, that's an absolutely beautiful ear. Like yeah. whoever said that awesome? ear was beautiful, you know, like, but you see it through a different lens and it sounds like that's what it is is one it's easy to portray what you've done in in a risk-taking way but the thread that keeps coming through it from you that i'm hearing is about the beauty is about having the having the cliff on one side and having the having the hole on the other side in the river and being able to be in harmony and thread that needle to to do to to be successful yeah. on the mountain so it sounds like like the next thing is not necessarily the biggest possible risk the next thing is the thing that brings in a greater beauty and a greater sense of purpose is that that's what i'm hearing from what you're saying 100 percent. uh you know just to, like uh to parallel your drawing story uh in covid i said like look i'm not going to come out of this just you know 
behind. I want to, I'm going to, I want to figure out what can I do in this COVID quarantine to, you know, do something that I couldn't, that I may have not done otherwise. So I started playing the guitar. I stink at it, but I love it. I mean, I play till my fingers are almost bleeding. I love it. I could do it all day long. Um, I wish I had started 30 years ago. And I, I just, I just love it. It just brings me such joy. It's like, it's the same as climbing. You devoting yourself into this, to this process and just little tiny incremental um, improvements. And uh, I, I just, I love that process. Um, so yeah, it's for me in the second half of life, it's, yeah, it's, it's finding a way to, to integrate, uh, finding a way to, as you said, like be in harmony, find greater connection, um, to feel more empathy in the world, to feel more love. Um, and I still love climbing and kayaking and doing all these things. I'm, I'm, I think I'm just as hardcore as ever, but I, I think I'm starting the, 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 the awareness is starting to expand a little bit more to like, uh, the bigger picture, I guess. It is. And, and maybe this is leading to this next question. Your answer is need, leading to this next question. Cause I watched some of your, your TV show. Welcome. Welcome to earth. Yeah. And the thing that struck me about that, especially knowing that you are blind is how beautiful it was. So the visual part was absolutely spectacular. Is that some of what you're communicating to the rest of the world? Kind of the beauty and it, that you're seeing through your interaction to be able to represent that to the rest of us? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't have sight. I don't have eyes. I mean, people get spectacular beauty from their eye, eyesight, you know, that you see in HD, you know, you see billions of pixels. It's awesome, but I don't have that. So I have to be able to explore and understand the world and get beauty from the world in different ways with the senses I have. So like, yes, going to this volcano, Yasser and uh, in the island chain of Vanuatu was spectacular. It was a blind man's dream to be able to stand on the rim of that volcano and listen to truck-sized magma bombs explode out of these vents into the sky and then splash back into the lava and hear the lakes of lava reverberate and like uh, create like waves, like an ocean that crash up against the walls of the caldera. It was like uh, it was like a a laser light show, uh, a, a, a uh, um, like a fireworks display, like all in my mind and 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 kind of like crashing through my body. It was so intense and so beautiful. I could have sat on the rim of the volcano for days, just listening to all the nuance of the soundscape below me. So yeah, for sure. I mean, those things are just. Uh, just gifts that fill you up, you know? Uh, yeah. So maybe that's a good message for the world. Use what you have to connect and find beauty and joy. Uh, Cause we're all missing things. Beauty, joy, connection, and be able to communicate that to other people, which is what I'm taking from what you're doing is that you, you, you are willing to, to take, the risk to do something that is really difficult, but also to be able to communicate what it means to be human to the rest of us. So to me, yeah, I look at that and say, thank you so much for doing what you're doing and keep doing it. Well, well think about this too. Will Smith is like this world megastar, you know, I mean, just what a life he's got. Right. It was part of the show with you. Yeah. Yeah, when we stood on the rim of that volcano together, we were just two human beings, both like little children going, oh, oh, whoa. So I'm never, I may never meet and hang out with Will Smith ever again, but that moment we were, I mean, that was incredible. The two of us, two people just experiencing this insanely beautiful and intense thing with awe sitting there together, like arm in arm. I mean, you know, it's, it's really powerful. It is really powerful, but I also really enjoy your message of saying, take that powerful to your, to your everyday. Yeah. Don't make it separate because otherwise we're chasing 
we're chasing the next great high in a lot of ways, as opposed to kind of being open to the to the joys of of life, which really can be in the simplicity of life as well. Yeah. And maybe I don't want to get overly preachy here, but like one of the elements of no barriers that we created this curriculum around it. And one of the sort of fundamental elements is this idea of vision. Maybe a little cheesy for a blind guy to talk about vision, but I mean, for me, vision is not seeing the future. It's not saying I'm going to go climb this or that, or do this or that. I mean, that's, that's a goal. The vision is deep. It's fundamental. You know, it's that whatever that human spirit that light inside you that's says this is the kind of life i want to live and so like people look outwardly to like things and for me i've always been driven by that thing inside you know the thing i want to grow and build inside me you know that says i want to live a life of adventure i want to be connected with humans i want to love fully uh i i i don't want to be imprisoned by my own fears like these are fundamental things that I always turn inward and look for when I'm scared or feeling lost because those are your compass. They are. And it's back to what we were talking about earlier, where it is that that sense of vulnerability of, you know, not not fortifying yourself, but being willing to be vulnerable and open, have that open heart and actually experience life. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very cool. <laughs> This is awesome. Well, Eric, we've got to get you out of here because you've got to get onto a plane pretty soon. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story and for what you're doing and how many people, all the people that you're helping, all the people who come in contact with you are the people you're helping. But I know that it's not a one way kind of deal that that they're helping you as well. So thanks for all you're doing for the community. Thank you, friend. And Chris, you know, like just even all this talk about connection and stuff right now, man, I just feel really connected with you and your story. And, uh, you know, like I think like we're running out of time. So, yeah, let's uh, connect in some way if I can help with any of your adventures uh, or or vice versa. You know what I mean? Like it'd be it's 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 beautiful to uh, to to do something together, maybe down the road. Um you know, and uh, and and then definitely, I want to promote no barriers. Uh, get people to come out to to our programs and so forth, and maybe we could get you involved in some of that stuff too. Yeah, let's do it. Let's keep this conversation going. I would absolutely love to do something with you and keep up the great work with no barriers. And and for people, they can go. What is it? Nobarriers.com, isn't it? Nobarriersusa.org. <laughs> Nobarriersusa.org. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So All right. Thanks. Thank you so much. I really appreciate right, cool. it. Uh, thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed a wonderful conversation with Eric Weinmayer. Uh, it's it, he blows me away, and and I felt a a greater and greater connection to Eric to you, Eric, as we as we went along. So hopefully, all of you enjoyed it. Please tell your friends. Please like us. Please follow us, and we will continue to bring great content to you. Until next time. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.